Have a seat. Welcome. Welcome everybody that's online. We are glad that you're with us uh, this morning. And uh, we're in a series called More Than a Building. Uh, and uh, if, so if you've got a Bible, uh, you can go ahead and we, we've kind of anchored this in Acts chapter 2. So we're going to look at a verse there. But you also may want to uh, turn to if you're actually you know, using <laughs> leather Bible. I know some of you are doing it on your device, but uh, also going to be in 2 Peter chapter 1. That's really the passage we're going to focus on today. Wow, I actually hear pages this morning. That's good. It's okay if, if it's on your phone. I mean, that's usually how I read my Bible is on my phone or my iPad, so... I mean, I mean, some people act like, I mean, I've literally heard people say that, like, something along the lines of, like, well, it's not really reading the Bible if you're reading it on your phone. I'm like, it's the same words. <laughs> How could it be any different? <laughs> okay, that's not the message. All right. <laughs> Ready to start now? Uh, okay. Some of you are still looking. You, you didn't do Bible drill when you were a kid, obviously, but <laughs> I'm glad you're looking. Um all right, so there, there's a, a well-known, um, popular atheist speaker and writer. His name's Sam Harris. He says this. He says, tell a devout Christian that his wife is cheating on him or that frozen yogurt can make a man invisible and he is likely to require as much evidence as anyone else. But tell him that the book he keeps by his bed was written by an invisible deity who will punish him with fire for eternity if he fails to accept its every incredible claim about the universe, and he seems to require no evidence whatsoever. Now, apart from some of the logical fallacies in that statement, uh, I think it's, a, it's an important statement because it may be a little on the extreme side for some people, but that's how a lot of people think of Christians. Like if you're a Christian, somehow you checked, it, you checked your brain at the door somewhere along the way. You know, you're against science, you're unenlightened, you're backwards. I mean, especially, you know, a Christian in East Tennessee. I mean, that just feeds all kinds of uh, stereotypes, right? Um, Sorry if you're from another part of the country. That's probably one of the things that you inherit by moving here. Uh, hopefully the advantages outweigh that. But, uh, I mean, there's uh, a lot of people that just think that, um, you know, Christians, I mean, to believe this stuff, you have to have completely lost your mind. You know, if you believe that God created everything, you know, when we supposedly know now that we're the product of evolution. Like, how could you believe in a virgin birth? I mean, did those people back then not know how babies are made? I mean, how can you believe in a resurrection? I mean, have you ever seen anybody rise from the dead? We know dead people don't rise. I mean, why do you go around talking about sin and judgment and, and hell and those kind of things. I mean, we know there's no absolutes. I mean, uh, Christians talk about truth all the time. And, but, you know, don't you know it's just my truth and it's a matter uh, of perspective and your culture and who are you to say that you're uh, right and, and, and somebody else is, is wrong? And, and, you know, sometimes Christians get defensive about these kind of things. And, and I used to be in that category, but I don't, I'm not that way anymore because the Bible says that the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are per perishing. I mean, really, some of this stuff is pretty crazy sounding stuff if we're honest about it. I mean, it's kind of out there a, a little bit. I mean, in fact, Justin, who's playing bass today, Priest, one of the best messages I've ever heard here a few years ago about the gospel, and one of the points in it was that uh, the gospel is believing an unbelievable message. I mean, it's just not something that humanly 
uh, you know, you thought up, or humanly, you come to this conclusion of. And, and so, I mean, to me, it's understandable why people would wrestle with some of these things. If you're wrestling with some of these things, I'm glad you're here, and I'm glad you're willing to, to, to check it out. And, and I get it if you're a little skeptical or if you have some questions. So here's the question as we do this series about the church that we're going to try to answer today. And, and that is, why in our modern world, with all of our advances in science, in medicine, in technology, just with the knowledge explosion, with, with the internet, with everything that we have, why do Christians and why do churches base their beliefs and, and, and lives on a 2,000-year-old plus, 2,000-plus-year-old book? Why do we do that? I mean, I think it's a, it's a reasonable question. I mean, if, you, if you're not a Christian, I think that's a completely fair question to ask. So, that's what we're going to try to answer today. So, let's go to Acts chapter 2, verse 42. And that will kind of give us the what of the answer. And then we're going to go to 2 Peter chapter 1 to get the why of the answer. So, in Acts 2.42, remember... Uh, Peter preached, 3,000 people roughly had gotten saved and, and baptized. And Luke is giving this summary statement about the progress, the development, uh, what the early church is doing that's uh, designed to be a model for us today for how the church is to function. That's the point of this series. And he starts out in Acts 2.42 and he says, And they continued steadfastly in the apostles' doctrine or the apostles' teaching depending on your translation. Now, we know that the apostles were, you know, it was 12. Judas, you know, was a fake. He was replaced by Matthias. There were other people, uh, you know, like Paul, that were considered apostles. But apostles were people who had accompanied Jesus in his ministry, uh, were uh, eyewitnesses of it, were eyewitnesses of the resurrection, and commissioned by Jesus to be uh, the leaders of the early church, and for him to give the revelation that would guide the church then and forevermore through. And so uh, the big idea here is that the church is not built with brick and mortar, but the church is built with the truth of the apostles' teaching. That's the idea. And, and so John Stott has written about this, uh, this verse. He says, the very first evidence Luke mentions of the Spirit's presence in the church is that they devoted themselves to the apostles' teaching. One might perhaps say that the Holy Spirit opened a school in Jerusalem that day. Its teachers were the apostles whom Jesus had appointed, and there were 3,000 pupils in the kindergarten. We note that those new converts were not enjoying a mystical experience which led them to despise their mind or disdain theology. Anti-intellectualism and the fullness of the Spirit are mutually in, in, incompatible because the Holy Spirit is the Spirit of truth. Nor did those early disciples imagine that because they had received the Spirit, He was the only teacher they needed and they could dispense with human teachers. On the contrary, they sat at the apostles' feet, hungry to receive instruction, and they persevered in it. Since the teaching of the new apostles has come down to us, in its definitive form in the New Testament, contemporary devotion to the apostles' teaching will mean submission to the authority of the New Testament church in the sense that it studies and submits to New Testament instruction. The Spirit of God leads the people of God to submit to the Word of God. And that's foundational to the church. So, that's the what of the answer. But... Really what I want to focus on in most of our time is the why behind it. So if you're not a Christian and you're considering this, I hope you'll listen closely and just think about okay, if, if the answer is to this question or, or, or if, the, if it's a legitimate question of why do we follow this old book, here's some of the answer to it. And I'm going to try to apply this both to us as individuals, to us as a church, if, if you're a believer, 
and to people who aren't Christians yet. So I want to give you three reasons from this text in, in 2 Peter chapter 1 as to why uh, the apostles' teaching is what we follow today. So number one, the apostles' teaching is the truth of God for all generations recorded in the New Testament. The apostles' teaching is the truth of God recorded for all generations in the New Testament. Look at what Peter writes here in 2 Peter 1, starting in verse 12. He says, For this reason I will not be negligent to remind you always of these things, though you know and are established in the present truth. And uh, established means to be firmly uh, established. It's kind of the idea of you're built on something solid. You're, you're rooted and, and, and you're grounded. So uh, keep that in mind. He says, yes, I think it is right as long as I am in this tent. He's saying as long as I'm alive, as long as I'm in this body. Tents used as a metaphor for the body in places in the New Testament. He says to stir you up by reminding you. So we need to keep being reminded of truth, right? We, we, we need that continually in our lives. But he says he's got an even, he, he, so he's reminding them then, but he's got a, an even bigger reason for writing this. He says, knowing this, that shortly I must put off my tent. In other words, I'm about to die. He knows he's going to be martyred. I mean, Jesus had basically told him that while after his resurrection. He says, just as our Lord Jesus Christ showed me. He says, moreover, I will be careful to ensure that you always have a reminder of these things after my decease. In other words, once I die, you still need to have this truth. And he was saying that to them then, but beyond that, he's saying that to us as the church of Jesus Christ today. So what we have in the New Testament is the apostles' teaching that is designed to be authoritative for the church today. Why do I exposit Scripture? Why do I preach through passages of Scripture, sometimes verses of or books of Scripture, verse by verse? Because there's nothing else to say. You're saying, I have no authority to stand up here and spout off my opinions. I have no authority to say anything that's not in accordance with this book. You should reject anything I say that doesn't line up with this book. You know, any pastoral authority today is only exist when it's in line with apostolic authority, which means that it's in line with the Word of God. You don't follow a man because he has a title. And so... This is foundational for the church. James Boyce has written in his commentary on Acts, he says, A spirit-filled church always studies the apostolic teaching. It is a learning church that grounds its experiences in and tests those experiences by the Word of God. We live in a different age, of course. We live thousands of years after this teaching. Peter's not with us. James was martyred. John has died. So have all the others, even Paul. How is it possible for us to focus on the apostolic teaching? These men gave us the New Testament. This is the deposit of their teaching. When it came time to collect the books that were to become our New Testament, the criterion by which that was done was whether they came from the apostles or bore the apostolic blessing. Moreover, the fact that we have our New Testament is a fulfillment of what Jesus Christ said he would do through these apostles. In order for us to copy the New Testament church at this point, as we should, we are to study the book these men have left us. It is in the New Testament that the authentic teaching of the Lord Jesus Christ is to be found. That's why Jude, the half-brother of Jesus, wrote, Brothers, beloved, while I was very diligent to write to you concerning our common salvation, I found it necessary to write to you, exhorting you to contend earnestly for the faith which was once for all delivered to the saints. Once for all delivered to the saints. That means it didn't come from us, it came from God. That's the claim he's making. That, that means it's not temporary, that means that it's permanent. Do you realize that if something is actually true, it's true for all people in all places at all times under all circumstances. 
which is the exact uh, opposite definition of truth in our modern world today. Do you understand when people start talking about my truth, it's a completely contradictory statement. You don't possess truth. You discover truth. Truth is revealed. And if truth, if something's true, it's not true for you. It's true for everybody. That's, that's the historical definition of truth. And it's certainly the biblical definition of truth. But see, here's the thing. If, if, if this is what we have in the New Testament, the apostolic deposit, is the faith once we're all delivered to the saints. Church, that, that means that we don't have the right to go against it. We don't have the right to redefine it. We don't have the right uh, to you know, pick and choose what we believe. So, so this is the thing. However you answer this question of you know, why uh, you know, follow a 2,000-year-old book, I, I think there's two uh, approaches you can take with it. You can say, I'm going to base my life on this. Or you can completely reject it. But, you know, please don't do uh, what, the, what liberal Christianity does uh, today. And I should probably put Christianity in air quotes. And pick and choose what seems palatable to them. You know, turn Jesus into some kind of hippie guru sage instead of the God-man. Um, you know, uh, leave out the resurrection, leave out the miraculous, those kind of things. I, I, have, uh, I had a professor at Carson Newman, and thank God for the, the changes that he is uh, making there through the leadership there. But I had a professor at Carson Newman who told us that you don't have to believe in the resurrection of Jesus Christ to be a Christian. All you have to do is, is, is confess that Jesus is Lord. But when you read Romans 10, 9, it says, If you be- believe in your heart that God raised Jesus from the dead, and you confess with your mouth that Jesus is Lord, you will be saved. I mean, what makes half of it true and the other half not true? I mean, to me, it's kind of an all or nothing kind of deal. But that's why the liberal denominations are dying. Right? Who's going to uh, give their life? Actually, who's even going to get out of bed for a metaphorical resurrection? I mean, what's the point in, in being in church today if Jesus didn't really rise from the dead? Same thing's true for, quote, progressive Christianity today. You know, where people are, are, you know, maybe they affirm some of the basics of the faith, but then they're following, you know, the modern stuff when it comes to marriage and gender and sexuality and all these kind of things. Listen, what I'm saying is you can't pick and choose. We're not given that option because we today are still under apostolic authority. But here is, you know, the application, I think, of this for us. Remember that phrase, established, firmly established? It's through knowing Scripture that we are firmly established in the truth. It's through knowing Scripture that we are firmly established in the truth. You know why a lot of people are struggling right now? They think it's circumstances, but it's not circumstances. It's because they don't have anything to stand on in bad circumstances. Listen, <laughs> the Billy Sunday, the famous evangelist, uh, you know, he used to say, a Bible that's falling apart usually belongs to a person that isn't. And there's a lot of truth in that. So, you know, if, if you're a Christian, again, like I said, You ought to be in a church, and if a church is a real church, they're going to preach the Bible as it is, as the Word of God. You're going to study the Bible. I mean, you know, in three times in the book of Acts, says they gather in the temple courts, apostolic teaching, and from house to house. You know, that's why we do small groups. You should be studying the Bible in homes together. Everything has to flow out of Scripture. You know, Spurgeon used to say that he wanted his people, if they got cut, to bleed the Bible. And I hope that's true of us. And if that is true of us, we'll be able to stand through the storms of life. But that can't just be true of church or Sunday morning. It's got to be true of you as an individual. I mean, if you're only feeding yourself spiritually or getting fed one day a week, you're not going to be very strong. 
And he said, well, you know, what do I do? Well, there's all kinds of options. I mean, get you version, do a Bible reading plan, you know, come up with, with, with some way. I mean, I heard my mom told a story the other day, and my mom's a, a really good cook, apparently runs my family, everybody except me, apparently. But, uh, but apparently she couldn't cook before she got married. I mean, my grandmother's a really good cook, but she wasn't like the hands-on type as far as, uh, as training. And plus, you know, she never wrote recipes down. It's like a pinch of this and a dab of that and, and, and that kind of thing. But apparently before she got married, they were having a conversation. My mom's saying she can't cook. And my, my grandmother chimed in and was like, oh, uh, she likes to eat. She'll learn. <laughs> and, and kind of the point is, if you're hungry, you'll feed yourself. Right? Do we have a hunger for the Word of God? And if we don't, it means one of two things. Either you're not really saved or you're quenching the Holy Spirit in your life. Something's wrong spiritually. So, you know... Christians a lot of times, you know, go around, oh, the Bible's the Word of God, the Bible's the Word of God. But have you actually read it? There, there's a, a, a New Testament, a famous New Testament skeptic. His name's Bart Ehrman. He's written a lot of books, but he actually is a Moody College graduate who um, ended up denying Christianity. He teaches at the University of North Carolina at Chapel Hill. And he talks about, in his beginning New Testament class, uh, and, you know, he'll have a lot of students from the South who have a church background. And, you know, he'll ask them, you know, do you believe the Bible is the inerrant word of God? And he says usually somewhere between half and two-thirds uh, will say yes. And he says, ask him a question. He says, how many of you have ever read a Harry Potter book all the way through? And he says usually it's about the same number, about half to two-thirds will say yes. And he says, how many of you have ever read the Bible all the way through? And he says there's usually about one or two hands that go up. Do we actually make the Bible a part of our lives? But how about if you're not a Christian? Again, why should you consider this? There's a Francis Schaeffer quote that goes back a few decades now, and, but I think it applies even more today. He says, modern man has both feet firmly planted in midair. I think that's how most people are living their lives. And so I guess my question would be, if, if you say it's not Jesus, what are you basing your life on? And how solid is it? And um, can I just, I think sometimes Christians are too defensive. So I, I want to circle back to where I started and some of the questions that people raise about Christianity. And, and I, you know, I admit it, some of it can sound kind of out there. But I think it takes a lot of faith to be an atheist too. I mean, I think you have to believe some pretty outlandish things to deny there is a God. Can I, can I get you to think about a few of them for a minute? To be an atheist, you have to believe that everything came from nothing. You realize that? That takes a lot of faith. Because the way we function, and see, you got to understand, I believe that truth is what's actually real. So I believe in the correspondence view of truth, that what's true corresponds to reality. And we believe in everyday life in the law of cause and effect. That for every effect, there's a cause. Something makes something happen. But yet, if, if you don't believe in God as the creator, you have to believe that somehow everything came from nothing, when that flies in the face of everything that we can actually see and touch and experience in our lives. I mean, how does everything came from something, something, someone had to start it because scientists have said with the Big Bang Theory that we know that the universe can't be eternal. And, and so you may think that I'm foolish and out there for believing that God is the uncaused first cause that set everything else into motion, but you're going to have to explain to me how everything could come from nothing if, if I'm going to take your position, which again, I think takes even more faith. You know, most people in America today say that there are no absolutes. There's no absolute truth. You understand, when you say that, you're stating an absolute. So it's a logically self-contradictory position. So I can't wrap my mind around how you're supposed to believe that. 
I mean, I was talking to an atheist one time who said, there is no such thing as objective reality. And apparently I'm not smart enough to be an atheist because I don't get that. I don't know how you even live that way. Which I don't know that most people really believe that. I think it sounds good. You know, if you're you're an atheist, obviously you're going to believe we're soulless. We're just material. We're highly evolved animals. But how is it that if we're soulless, that we desire things like love, beauty, truth, goodness, peace, hope, uh, righteousness? I mean, how do you even define those things if you're an atheist and we're just simply material beings and, and everything is determined by the process of evolution? What makes those things good? What makes those things the things uh, that, that we hope for? I mean, you know, why would I want good in, in, in the world if I'm just simply a product of evolutionary processes? Wouldn't I want everybody else to get bad because that's how I get ahead? You know, non-Christians a lot of times will criticize Christians for talking about sin and judgment and hell. But I kind of find that strange. They're like, no sin, don't judge people. When cancel culture is such a big thing. Am I the only one that seems a little contradictory to? Everybody's judgmental. Don't let anybody convince you otherwise. We know there's right and wrong. Right? We know there is right and wrong. But, but do you understand that like if you say there, there are no absolutes and you want to be logically consistent, you can't say anything is wrong. Like anything anybody does to you, that's their truth. That's their perspective. That's how they're wired. And you say, well, no, it, 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 people can decide their own right and wrong unless it hurts somebody else. Well, you can't say that because that then becomes your morality. People say, there's no resurrection. When, the resurrection couldn't happen. Why, why couldn't the resurrection happen? Well, resurrections don't happen unless it did. Do you understand? That's neither a scientific or a historic statement, or a historical statement. That's a philosophical statement. You're assuming up front, a priori is the technical term, that uh, resurrections don't happen, the miraculous doesn't happen, because you're assuming that, that there is no God, and so we live in a closed universe, so everything uh, you know, is a process of scientific things and cause and effect except the original thing. And again, that's a faith position, because, and it's not logical because you're ruling out the possibility before you examine the possibility based on your philosophy instead of considering that there are people who claim this happened and in, in evaluating the evidence for it. People say, well, there, there couldn't have been a virgin birth. We, we know how babies were created. Those people, you know, they were just so unenlightened, and they don't have science like us and, and those kind of things. Can I just tell you that people figured out how to make babies way before we came along? I mean, they may not have ultrasound technology or all the scientific knowledge that we have, but they were pretty good at that before the modern time. And, you know, it's, oh, these people are so unenlightened how, unenlightened, how could they believe something like that, so on and so forth. I just wonder, you know, if we could do like our Marty McFly back to the future thing, and, and like they were here today. I wonder if those people from back then be thinking, man, those people are so unenlightened. And they got pregnant man emoji now. <laughs> They're just so confused. They don't get how this works. Dudes think they're women. I mean, they're just so confused about all this. And all I'm saying is, before you want to say Christianity is fanciful and out there and has no answers and those kind of things, can I ask you to answer some of those questions and think through some of those things? Second, the apostles' teaching is the eyewitness testimony of Jesus Christ. The apostles' teaching is the eyewitness testimony of Jesus Christ. Notice what Peter goes on to say here in verse 16. 
He says, For we do not follow cunningly devised fables, or some translations may say myths. Uh, the, the word is actually uh, the Greek word that we get our English word myths from. And, and basically, you know, that's what a lot of people say today. You know, maybe they weren't outright, outright lying, but these were just kind of myths and legends that just kind of grew over time. Yeah, Jesus was real, but, you know, he really wasn't the Son of God, but over time that came about. But, uh, you know, Peter says, we do not follow cunningly devised fables. When we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but were eyewitnesses of his majesty. That's what they claimed. And then he, he's, he's referring to the transfiguration. He says, For he received from God the Father honor and glory when such a voice came to him from the excellent glory. This is my beloved Son in whom I am well pleased. And we heard this voice which came from heaven when we were with him on the holy mountain. Now, I want to come back to that uh, in, in a few minutes and talk about why I think he used that as an example and what it says to us. But before we do that, I want you to think about something. Again, especially if you're not a Christian, they claim to be eyewitnesses. Now, you can claim, you know, I saw this. Maybe you did, maybe you didn't. Why should we believe them? And uh, so I want to share this with you. It comes from at least the, 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 the wording for it, the three, the three tests from Sean McDowell, okay? Uh, should we actually believe that this was eyewitness testimony? He says, first test, you know, and he talks about when you're looking at history, is um, he calls it the telephone test. Remember the game Telephone? Like when you whisper something in one person's ear, and then they whisper it to the next person, and you go around the room, and, and it's generally uh, nowhere near where it started when it gets back to, to the person who started it. And so he says, well, does this mean do we have the actual text of Scripture? How many manuscripts do we have? How far in between them? How much have they changed? Uh, those kind of things. So some of the things you probably should understand is, you know, there's more manuscripts by far of the New Testament than any book in ancient history. There, there's over 24,000 copies of the New Testament. That doesn't mean the whole thing of portions of different parts of it. Um, the earliest copy they found, they date to about 125 A.D. in Egypt. And, you know, if it was in Egypt by then, I mean, it would really prove that the New Testament was written in the first century uh, you know, they're somewhere between probably, you know, scholars are going to debate this, but 10 to 20 years up to the last book, about 60 years after Jesus uh, was crucified. And uh, there's a scholar by the name of Peter Williams at Cambridge who's done some work to show differences in spelling in the New Testament text and later Greek text would mean it would have to be early, close to the time uh, of Jesus. And you know, when you look at other works of ancient literature and, com and compare it, uh, like Homer, the Iliad, it's probably the second best attested book of ancient literature, but there's a 500-year difference between the original and the first copy. The scholars have 643 copies of that. See how that pales in comparison to the New Testament. So you can say the New Testament's unreliable, but if you're going to do that and be objective and honest, you need to throw out every other book in ancient literature as well. In fact, there are some scholars who would say that there are more textual questions about Shakespeare's work 1,500 or so years later than there are about the New Testament. Uh, most uh, honest New Testament scholars, Bruce Metzger, Daniel Wallace, would say uh, there's no textual question about 99.6 to 99.8% of the New Testament. There's all kinds of variants in the different manuscripts, but there's like spelling differences, that kind of thing. There, there's less, well under 1% of passages in the New Testament there's, that there's any question about what the original actually said. And so don't dismiss the New Testament by saying, well, we don't have the originals, we don't know what it said. There's enough evidence to know what it said. There's the writings of the early church fathers by which you could re reconstruct almost the entire New Testament just from them. Second, there's what McDowell calls the corroboration test. Now, so like if you're watching Law and Order or some kind of crime drama on TV, uh, somebody gets arrested, they're interviewing them, what are they looking for? What's your alibi, right? 
Can somebody corroborate your story? And so he asked the question, are there other historical materials that confirm or deny the testimony provided by the New Testament? Well, here's some things to consider. Irenaeus, writing in about 180 A.D., and you know, a lot of the critics in the New Testament says, say it's a 3rd, 4th century kind of document. So he, he says this, he says, Matthew published his own gospel among the Hebrews in their own tongue, while Peter and Paul were preaching the gospel in Rome and founding the church there. After their departure, Mark, the disciple and interpreter of Peter, himself handed down to us in writing the substance of Peter's preaching. Luke, the follower of Paul, set down in a book the gospel preached by his teacher. Then John, the disciple of the Lord, who also leaned on his breast, himself produced his gospel while he was living at Ephesus in Asia. Tacitus, a Roman governor and historian, writing around 100 A.D. in his work, The Annals, wrote the following. He says, a veil to relieve Nero from the infamy of being ordered or being believed to have ordered the conflagration, the fire on Rome. Hence, to suppress the rumor, he falsely charged with the guilt and punished with the most exquisite tortures the persons commonly called Christians who were hated for their enormities. Christus, the founder of the name, was put to death by Pontius Pilate, procurator of Judah in the reign of Tiberius, but the pernicious superstition repressed for a time broke out again, not only through Judea, where the mischief originated, but through the city of Rome also. A man by the name of Lucian, writing in the 2nd century, wrote, The man who was crucified in Palestine because he introduced this new cult into the world. Pliny the Younger, governor of Bithynia in Asia Minor in AD 112, was writing the emperor Trajan, seeking counsel on how to treat the Christians because he had been asking them to deny their faith, killing them when they didn't. He wrote, They affirmed, however, that the whole of their guilt or their error was that they were in the habit of meeting on a certain fixed day before it was light when they sang an alternate verse, a hymn to Christ as to a God, and bound themselves to a solemn oath not to do any wicked deeds. So you've got other authors outside the Bible. Uh, you've got archaeological evidence that yeah, I won't get into the details of that you know, over and over again has affirmed things that the Bible has claimed. And then his third test is what McDowell calls the honesty test. In other words, can you trust the eyewitnesses? Like, you know, there's some people, like Shane Phillips says something to me, I'm going to take it to the bank. I'd be shocked, you know, if he lied to me. There's other people that, like, anything they say to me is suspect because they've lied to me before, right? So are, are the witnesses honest? And so he asked three questions about this. Does the document claim to be presenting truth? Well, Peter just said it's not myths, right? Uh, Luke said he carefully investigated it. John said, you know, this is what I saw. Paul, he, he wrote his testimony. So they, they're at least claiming, you know, it's not like Greek mythology. They're at least claiming it's true. That doesn't automatically mean it's true. That's what they're claiming. Second question. Historians have something they call the criterion of embarrassment. And what that means is, is what, do they write things that are embarrassing to them? Because the idea is, usually if you're going to embellish something, you're going to make yourself look better, not worse. Right? If you go fishing and you catch a three-pound bass, you're telling people you caught a five-pound bass, not a one-pound bass, right? If I'm at the gym and, you know, I bench press, and this would be a myth, I bench press 300 pounds, and I want to exaggerate it, I'm not saying I bench press 250, I'm saying I bench press 350, right? That's just how we are. Well, but they do. You got Peter denying Jesus. You got Jesus calling Peter Satan. I mean, if you're trying to start a church, you're writing, hey, Jesus called our pastor Satan. I mean, is that good PR right there? You've got Paul rebuking Peter. You know, they're they're falling asleep on Jesus. They're fighting amongst themselves. A lot of times they don't understand what Jesus is saying. They're like a traveling small group circus, pretty much. I mean, I mean, they're a bunch of buffoons a lot of times. You, you've got, uh, you know, the women discovering the empty tomb, being the first witnesses while the disciples are afraid, sitting in the corner somewhere, sucking their thumb. 
And, and, and a woman, you know, couldn't testify in a Jewish court of law then. So if you're making something up, you know, why are you going to make that the first eyewitness? I mean, why would you make, you're a really bad liar if that's the story you're making up. I mean, what about the whole idea of grace? I mean, grace is arguably the central message of the Bible. It's definitely one of them. I mean, why would they make up something that's different from every other religion, number one? And number two, if they're making something up, why would they make Jesus the only hero of the story and make them the exact opposite of heroes of the story? Because, you know, what they're saying is we're so messed up that he had to die for us for us to be saved. Why would you make that up? And then the third question is, what did it cost them? The answer is pretty simple, just their lives. So are they trustworthy? If they are trustworthy, then you ought to act on what they say. If not, if not, then we ought to be somewhere else. Again, if you're a Christian, you're staking your life and your eternity on that they're telling the truth. That's pretty much what this boils down to. If you're not a Christian, you're staking your life and eternity on they're not telling the truth. I think if that's what's at stake, I'd be doing some research to try to find out whether or not it's true or not. I'd be talking to somebody. I'd be doing something. Now, why did he use the transfiguration as, an, as the example? Well, let's look, at the, let's look at the passage he's referring to, Matthew chapter 17, starting in verse 1. It says, After six days Jesus took with him Peter and James and John his brother and led them up on a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, which means basically his glory shone through. It says his face shone like the sun, his clothes became white as light. This, they got just a brief glimpse of Jesus in heaven. They got just a, a, a brief glimpse of Jesus in his resurrected, glorified body. It says, Behold, there appeared to them Moses and, and Elijah talking with him. Again, you might think this is one of these crazy passages. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it is good that we are here. I'm like, duh. Uh, <laughs> you're only in a unique event in all of human history. Uh, Peter just had to say something. He says, If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you and one for Moses and one for Elijah. And he's still not getting it. Right, He was still speaking when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, This is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased. Listen to him. When the disciples heard this, they fell on their faces and were terrified. But Jesus came and touched them, saying, Rise and have no fear. And when they lifted up their eyes, they saw no one but Jesus only. And as they were coming down the mountain, Jesus commanded them, Tell no one the vision until the Son of Man is raised from the dead. Why do you use this as an example? Because I think pretty much everything about Jesus is wrapped up in this passage. He is the Son of God. He, he is uh, glorious. Uh, you know, he's going to die. He's going to rise from the dead. He's going to come back. You know, his powerful, mighty, beautiful resurrection uh, body. And, and so the point of this is, you know, uh, being, a, being a Christian and living the Christian life is not about reading this book and following all the rules in it. The, the point of being a Christian is reading this book, seeing Jesus, and trusting him. It's beholding his majesty, his glory, his his greatness, his goodness, his sacrifice, his resurrection. It's looking to him and trusting him. That's what saves us. That's what changes our lives. It's not we follow the rules to get to him. It's he kept all the rules that we broke. And by his grace, we can be made right with him. And then he'll change us from the inside out where we can live this out. That's what it means to be a Christian. And then last, the apostles' teaching recorded in the New Testament, is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Let's go back to 2 Peter chapter 1 and, and, and read the, the last three verses there of, of the passage. He says, so we have the prophetic word confirmed, which he's referring to the Old Testament. And, and another thing that we could talk about, another thing if you want to explain away Christianity away, if you want to explain Christianity away, one of the things you have to explain away is all the fulfilled prophecies in the Bible. And so this prophetic word is confirmed. Jesus has fulfilled uh, the Old Testament. He says, which you do well, and, and hang on to this phrase, uh, come back to this at the very end, which you do well to heed. 
Tell us to heed this, to pay attention to this. He says it's the light that shines in a dark place. What's scripture? It's a lamp into our feet and a light into our path. Until the day dawns and the morning star rises in your hearts. That's talking about when Jesus comes back. He's saying until then, let scripture be the light that guides our lives. He says knowing this first, that no prophecy of scripture is of any private interpretation. Meaning that there's more to it than this, but in part is we don't get to decide what it means. It means what God meant it to mean, and our job in interpreting Scripture is reading out the God-intended meaning of it. It's what's called exegesis. That's how you study the Bible. That's how I should preach the Bible. You know, if, if there's, and of course this ties back to what we're talking about with truth. If there's, you know, absolute truth with objective meaning, that's what we're trying to discern in Scripture. We're not trying to read into it what we think, or it's not a matter of, you know, everybody kind of sitting around. Well, what do you think this passage means? And what do you think it means? And what do you think it means? You know, John McCarthy MacArthur describes that as everybody pooling their ignorance. Although I did learn this week that uh, apparently when you actually say this, though, that there's an objective meaning to Scripture, apparently that makes you a white supremacist, according to some people. So I never knew I was a white supremacist, you know, but apparently according to some people I am, even though I've stood and proclaimed in front of groups of people from the Bible for, you know, decades now that racism is an evil and a sin, but, you know, that's the, the day in which we live. But it's, no, it's of no private interpretation. We don't get to decide what it means. And this is going to lead into chapter 2 where he's warning against false teachers. Why? He says, because, for prophecy never came by the will of man. But holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. He's talking about the Old Testament, but he's talking about the whole Bible. Consider what he says later in 2 Peter chapter 3. He says, And count the patience of our Lord as salvation, just as our beloved brother Paul also wrote to, also wrote to you according to the wisdom given to him, has written to you as also in all his epistles, and, and this is funny, this cracks me up, speaking in them of these things in which are some things hard to understand. So if you've ever read Paul, like if you're in Romans 9, and you're like, what is this dude talking about? You're in some really good company because the apostle Peter just said the same thing. Now to me, this is one of these little subtle things that shows the truthfulness of the Bible. Because wouldn't it make sense that you got Paul, one of the most educated people in the world at that time, might be hard for a Galilean fisherman to understand? And so he goes on to say, which some things are hard to understand, which untaught, unstable people twist to their own destruction as they do also the rest of the Scriptures. So even at this point, you know, people talk about, you know, women of the Scripture canonize, all this kind of thing. Here you've got Peter saying Paul's writing Scripture at this point already before he died. 2 Timothy 3.16 says all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. And so what this means is, is that Scripture is superior to our personal experience. That's what he's saying. Even their eyewitness testimony of the Scriptures is superior to that. He's saying this is true because the Holy Spirit is inspired by Scripture, which means this is the, the Bible is a divine human book, but as God was leading the writers by His Spirit, He so superintended them that they wrote what He intended them to say, but it was in their own personality, and it's His Word, completely true, inerrant, infallible, because He inspired it. So what does that mean we do with this? It means we submit to its authority. Remember that phrase, which you do well to take heed. What's the authority of Scripture? It means God said it, that settles it, we must obey. You know, even the apostles did that. Read the book of Acts. Acts chapter 1, they needed to make a decision about uh, placing, replacing Judas. They went back to the Old Testament. You read Acts chapter 2. Uh, Peter's being questioned about what's happening. He interprets the experience by Scripture and quotes from the book of Joel. We read it in Acts chapter 4. They're being persecuted. They interpreted their experience by what? By uh, Psalm chapter 2. Acts chapter 15, they're trying to decide how are people actually saved? How are Gentiles actually saved? They decided it not by the testimony of Peter and Paul, but by James taking their testimony and going back to the Old Testament and comparing it to that. Uh, the apostles were submissive to the authority of Scripture, which was 
for them, the Old Testament. Today, we are to be submissive to the authority of Scripture, both the Old Testament and the New Testament, because the, Old, the New Testament is the, the, the revelation of God, the truth of God for us, for all generations, recorded in the New Testament. It's the eyewitness testimony of Jesus Christ, and it is inspired by the Holy Spirit. So again, why do Christians and churches base their lives, their teaching, their beliefs on a 2,000-year-old book? That, in short, and I understand this has not been a short sermon, but compared to what could be said about it, it's just a little overview. That's why. So what do you believe? What are you going to base your life on? What or who are you trusting to save you? What's the source of authority in your life? If if you're a Christian, if you claim to be a Christian, what that means is Jesus is your Lord and the Bible is his blueprint for how to live under his lordship. And so what that means is part of our job as a Christian is to get in the Word of God and by the power of the Holy Spirit do what it says, repenting of sin when we don't. That's a big part of walking with Christ day in and day out. Are you doing that? As a church, it means that we preach the Bible, we teach the Bible, we study the Bible uh, together. I mean, I'm talking from like preschool all the way through death. In our kids' ministry, in our youth ministry, in our young adult ministry, in our small group ministry, on Sunday mornings, every part of what we do, I mean, the centerpiece of ministry, I believe, is proclaiming Jesus from the Word of God. And so, that's what we're called to do. But we're not just called to talk about it. We're called to submit to its authority, which means it guides us when we make decisions. It tells us what our mission is. It tells us uh, how to function as a church. It's our job to find out what God says and do it individually and corporately. And then if you're not a Christian, will you consider this eyewitness testimony about the majesty of Jesus Christ? And understand that despite what Sam Harris says, that Uh, most Christians don't believe that you check your brain at the door to be a Christian. We don't believe faith is a leap into the dark. I mean, that's not what faith is. Faith is not, you know, believing something despite the evidence. It's it's, faith is trusting God and His Word. But I want you to understand, you know, if it's true, it's going to correspond to reality. And so there's going to be reasons to believe it. I encourage you to check that out. Or if like... You know, if you've been considering this and you're like, uh, you know what, God's speaking to me, this is true. I encourage you to act on your faith because it's not enough just to know it in your head. But by faith to surrender your life to Christ. To ask Him to forgive you of your sins. To ask Him to take control of your life. To look to Him. Rely on Him. Give yourself to Him. Place yourself in His hands. Place your confidence, your hope in him because he died for you and because he rose from the dead if you got questions come see me after the service set up an appointment talk to somebody you know if you're online uh, get in touch with one of our hosts we'd love to follow up with you but, but let's bow our heads and close our eyes